Professional mountain biker Adam Craig says it's one of the top three places in the universe he's ridden. Where is this magical mountain biking nirvana? It's none other than Brevard, North Carolina, home to Pisgah National Forest and DuPont Recreational Forest. The area boasts over 300 miles of peerless single track, not to mention hundreds of miles of gravel roads, creating a near endless array of routes, terrains, and challenges to explore. Four vibrant bike shops will get you sorted, whether you need gear, service, or a top-notch rental. Top it off with an array of craft breweries, cafes, and gathering spots that have earned Brevard the title as one of the best small towns in America in 2021. It all adds up to a premier mountain biking destination you'll want to experience for yourself. Find out more at explorebrevard.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Matt and Jerome and I are going to be talking about mountain bike trends. And, you know, it's the start of a new year. And so for this show, we're going to start by talking about uh, some recent trends, some trends from 2021 and maybe a few years before that. Um, and then we'll move into what we think we're going to see more of or less of this year. And so I'm really excited. This should be a fun conversation for sure. For those who don't know, Jero is our tech editor, so he's our expert on gear and doing product reviews and that sort of thing. And Matt is our features editor, and so he's always tracking things like trails, advocacy, community issues, racing, and things like that. So we should have a good mix of different trends to talk about. So Jero, I'm going to start with you and ask about a recent trend in 2021 uh, that we covered a good bit on the site, and that is mixed wheel bikes. What's the deal with mixed wheel bikes? What's the deal with mixed wheels? <laughs> so I've actually only had a chance to try out one mixed wheel bike, but we've definitely seen a lot come come across the desk in terms of news and new bikes, and it seems like every brand kind of wants to have one available. Some some companies are putting in different links so that they can just change their 29er to a mixed wheel bike and kind of have the same geometry. And from everything I understand from talking with athletes, the main advantage is for people with short inseams. So they're not like if you're if you're racing gravity in particular. So you have a little more clearance between your butt and the tire when it's super steep. And other than that, um, you know, a lot, several athletes that I've talked with have said like it's not faster it's not a ton more maneuverable, but if I've got a little more clearance and I can kind of like throw down with a little more confidence because of that, then mm. yeah, it just works out better. So, yeah. Why is this like a new thing? Like, I mean, I guess we've always had the ability to do that. Why do you think it's like gaining popularity sort of all of a sudden, or maybe it's not all of a sudden. I mean, people have been doing it for years, but it does seem like we're seeing it a lot more. You have any, any thoughts on that, Drew? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's a good question. I think it's maybe gained a little more light in the mainstream as like one, this is skeptical, but you know, it's a way to sell bikes. It's something new. People can get excited about it and think like, Hey, I want to try that. Is it, if it works well for folks like Martin Mays and Isabeau Cordier, like maybe, maybe I should do that too. So mm -hmm. I think that's, that's always part of it. And then, you know, just seeing folks who are really fast, who it works well for. I think there's always the question of if that works for the fastest people in the world, maybe I should try it. So I think, I think that's part of it too. Yeah. 
Definitely. What about you, Matt? Have you had a chance to test any mixed wheel bikes or I know you've definitely covered it um, in a trend piece uh, in 2021. What What are your thoughts on mixed wheels? No, I mean, I, yeah, I haven't ridden any actually. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like more and more bigger brands are kind of moving their 27 inch platforms to a mixed wheel platform. I thought like the best example of that I guess this, that was this past year was when Santa Cruz moved their bronze into a mixed wheel. And like, I had talked to them years ago, um, probably at least like two or three years ago about 27 and then 29. And then I go, yeah, you know, like we're going to have 27 is going to be a dedicated platform for us for, for a while. And, you know, we'll offer basically both wheel sizes and then alluded to, you know, one of their best selling bikes being 27.5, which assuming at that time was the Bronson. And then this year, now it got 50% bigger <laughs> in the wheel size. So <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, I think like Drew had mentioned, maybe it keeps it a little bit more maneuverable, but then you get the front end rollover confidence as well. So yeah. Uh, and again, like you mentioned, it's another reason to, um, to make some of your bikes that um, are maybe not going to progress in other areas like geometry or suspension kinematics uh, a little bit more exciting. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you raise an interesting point too. You kind of alluded to the fact that 27.5 as a wheel size, I mean, it seems seems to be the popularity of it is decreasing. We're seeing fewer of those types of bikes and maybe doing mixed wheels, mulleting uh, bikes is a way to kind of bridge that gap, like to take those 27.5 bikes and, and get some of the advantages of, of 29ers, but then maybe still address the things that people like about 27.5 bikes. I know one of the the bikes I tested in 2021, the Thompson Hooch, uh, was originally designed as a 27.5 hardtail. And, you know, to very few people's surprise, like that bike didn't sell that well because nobody wants a 27.5 hardtail right now. Um, there's, I'm sure there are dedicated riders, but that's not sort of the popular thing. And so they use that as an opportunity to pivot that bike and to say, well, you know, if you put a, you put a bigger wheel on the front, then it becomes a different bike and it kind of, you know, gets you closer to a 29er, but you know, still not a full blown 29er. So yeah, maybe, maybe best of both worlds and just an easy way to swap too. I mean, I think people are always looking for affordable ways to like upgrade or you know, freshen up their bikes and, and mixed wheel seems to be that also. Yeah. I think one other piece of the story here is for race teams, um, just to back it up to my comment earlier, I kind of forgot to mention this, that if you're a team manager and a mechanic having those mixed wheel sizes, especially in enduro where folks have to run the same wheels, like if any of the spokes break, you've got to have that many more spoke lengths. Oh, geez. Yeah. And if somebody flats a tire, you've got to have more tires. You can't just like grab whatever 29er tire you've got. Mm -hmm. And then same thing with rims. So I'm sure it is adding a little bit to the massive pile of stuff that those teams have to haul around. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's a good point. It's a big disadvantage for sure. And so, yeah, it's almost like the advantages must be like really big if people are willing to put up with that in the race situation. Even me personally, when I've had mixed wheel bikes and for tests i'm like uh do i have to carry like multiple tubes no you don't but you can make you can make either one fit in either wheel size but it's not ideal and same with the tires you know if you 
if you pinch a tire, better hope you got a backup in, in the right size back in the garage. So for sure. Yeah. I'd say like the other interesting thing too, is like, is more brands sort of deliver it as an option from the factory. Uh, like the messaging behind them has always been that they're not, you know, you, you shouldn't take your 27 bike and make it a mullet and you shouldn't take your 29 inch bike and make it a mullet because it's going to whack the geometry. You're going to avoid the warranty and it's just not made for that. I think a lot of people have tried that and maybe it's worked and, and maybe the brands have been right. But yeah, then again, it is just a sort of hop on this, uh, this train of attacking the brands. Like we all love to do for selling them stuff that we may not need. But, um, you know, now that you can sort of deliver that, that package that's it, this wheel set is designed around this geometry, mm-hmm. which to give credit to mullet cycles is what they've been doing for uh, a long time. But yeah, now you again have. Uh, sort of like this new model that's designed around that mixed wheel set and um, is going to come straight from the factory. And <laughs> you don't have to argue about warranties with them if something goes wrong. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Is it them sort of acquiescing to the consumer demands uh, in offering that or yeah, what what is behind it? That's really interesting because a lot of the bikes, it, it can be hard to tell, but when brands are offering like a, a 29er or like a matched wheel build of a bike and also a mixed wheel version you look at those frame details and geometry and it's pretty clear they're using the same frame i mean they're doing what yeah most consumers would do at home they just put a different wheel hopefully a different fork and you know maybe they adjust the travel on the fork a bit but yeah for the most part they're like actually it's fine Usually they throw a different link in there to make the change the bottom bracket height. Mm-hmm. And it's that's another cool thing that some brands are doing is offering like I think of the V ten, for example, offering the same bike where you can set it up with whatever wheel configuration you want. You could go both twenty seven five, both twenty nine, or mixed. And that's pretty sweet. Like especially if you're racing and it happens to work better on a certain track and you happen to have all those wheel options with you. That could be pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, let's flip over to the trail side and talk about the trend of mountain bike trails, like good mountain bike trails, purpose-built mountain bike trails, uh, popping up in unlikely places and pretty much everywhere on the planet. You know, I think the the example that comes to mind that most people are familiar with is Bentonville, Arkansas, where they've built a lot of trails where traditionally there hadn't been much of a mountain bike scene, but we're also seeing it in other places as well. Matt, what are some of the the stories that we've covered over the last couple of years um, along those lines? Yeah. I mean, I think Arkansas has sort of served as like this model and like economic viability study to say for basically any town to say, Hey, we can do this too. And like turn around our economy. Um, and there's a lot of older examples of that too, you know, up in Sierra Nevada, as you say, Cotter Harbor, or I, I mean, all over the place, but yeah, now places like, you know, smaller cities in the South, I think it was Ironton, Missouri that we covered last year. Yeah. I mean, mountain biking in Missouri, Ely, Nevada is a small destination that's sort of building more trails, Cedar city in Utah, which is an hour, hour and a half North of St. George. So, yeah, I mean, just like all these places that people wouldn't have normally thought of for mountain biking, as long as you've got an internet and kind of see what other 
towns have done with uh, with their trails, and you've got well a boom bus cycle especially, and can say, hey, we can build sustainable recreation here. Then, yeah, I mean, I think we'll just continue to see more and more of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing that strikes me and that makes me think that there's something new and different going on here is that a lot of these trail projects again, like spread all over the place are, they're calling themselves mountain bike parks. And, you know, I used to associate that with like ski resorts or, you know, like a real, you know, dedicated place to ride. And these are dedicated places to ride, but they're popping up on, you know, municipally owned properties, counties and cities are building these trails. One of the places I know that that you wrote a bit about last year, Matt, San Lee Park in Sanford, North Carolina I mean, this is like Eastern Carolina where there's very little elevation. Lee and I used to ride at San Lee and it was, you know, old hiking trail type of experience there. Definitely was not geared toward mountain biking specifically, but, you know, they've put in a lot of work over the years and have really transformed it with jump lines and big features and things that, yeah, you wouldn't have seen that even just a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think the mountain bike population as a whole. I mean, they're just much hungrier than any other user group for those types of trails. Like people aren't going to, hikers aren't going to treat a destination the same way. Like they're not going to drive two hours to go and hike in like the rolling hills of, of somewhere just because they built new hiking trails to whereas like, yeah, mountain biking is much more about that experience on the trail. Like hiking gravitates more toward, you know, these scenic vistas and sort of like these summits and, and mountain bikers really just want fun trails to ride in the end. Like there, when it comes down to it, like it could matter less whether there are amazing views and things like that. As long as we have fun trails to ride, then yeah, you can make a lot more money. Yeah. It's funny too. This is also one of those though, that I'm, I'm kind of on the fence. I'm kind of like, is this a trend? Is this something we should retire? Like the trope, like, Oh, I was pleasantly surprised by the trails in XYZ location. And it's like, should we be surprised anymore that there are good trails pretty much anywhere. I mean, if people want to build them, then they're going to build them and you can make really great trails no matter where you are. Another kind of funny element to the difference between the way hikers and mountain bikers interact with trails is I don't know of anybody who hikes regularly and several of my friends do who goes out and builds trails like on their own time or even maintains them. Like they hike, they enjoy the trails, but I know a whole lot of mountain bikers who like every other weekend are out digging trail and cleaning trail and doing it on their own and with trail organizations and all of the above. Um, yeah, I think that that's a, a distinction, at least for a lot of hikers and mountain bikers as well. Yeah, for sure. It's like we create our own fun in a lot of ways. I mean, the hikers, there's going to be hiking trails. People love to hike to like a waterfall or like a scenic vista and like, you can't build more waterfalls. You can't build more scenic <laughs> overlooks. I mean, I guess you could. You cut down a bunch of trees, put in a deck. But uh yeah, I mean, for us, we can create it. We can just take a piece of dirt and like make it fun, make it worth visiting. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's interesting to you mentioned, you know, being surprised by those destinations and <clears throat> I'd met some folks at a party a couple months ago who were like, Oh my gosh, have you and this just came up with somebody else this like yesterday, actually, with some of my wife's friends. But, oh my gosh, have you been to Arkansas? Like, there's all these mountain bike trails and this and that. And, you know, if you're a mountain biker, you're already tuned into that conversation. But kind of contrasting it with ski destinations to where you look at, like, the enormous cost of living in ski destinations. 
and you can't like there are I mean when is the last time a new ski destination or ski mountain in the US popped up? Like like tens of years because you can't just build new ski destinations, you know, the mountains that kind of get that snow that make it worth to to build an actual ski resort, like those are pretty much taken up. Mm-hmm. So whereas there's still still so much real estate for mountain biking. It's just yeah, a lot easier to create a trail destination. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and similar to those ski destinations, I mean, the, the trails in Arkansas were funded by one group of folks who has a ton of money. Like that's not going to happen everywhere. You know, it's not like every state can, can look at, look to Arkansas and be like, Oh, we'll just do what they did. uh, As long as we find the right benefactor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things maybe Amazon. Yeah. Bezos. (laughs) He would build an indoor one, right? He's got those like biodome things at their headquarters. It's like a bunch of trees and plants like living inside. Pretty weird. Jump to the moon. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I was going to say we'll definitely talk more about this in the next part of the episode where we talk about the upcoming trends. Because I think trail funding is definitely something that has been changing pretty recently, even more so than, than seeing these destinations pop up in, in surprising places. So before we get into the upcoming trends, let's keep talking about some of the stuff that's already trending. And the next one I have on the list is high pivot bikes. And Matt, you wrote a piece, you tested a high pivot bike um, in 2021 and then wrote about sort of your experience, what you found from riding one. What's the deal with high pivot bikes? Why is this a trend? And and do you think this is like something that we're going to see grow even more? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it will continue to grow, but, um, Drew definitely jump in if I explain this wrong, but yeah, I mean, the high pivot sort of will end like combining it with other existing suspension designs, like the horse link to where it'd been usually reserved for single pivot bikes but moving that pivot up uh, and combining it with something that gets a lot of, um, or something that has a lot of anti-squat built into it. So like an enduro bike where you want this really progressive platform that's going to climb really well, you throw that high pivot on and the idler pulley, then you also have something that's, you know, usually as you raise anti-squat, then you decrease small bump sensitivity. And so, I mean, keeping that, adding the high pivots, and then you've got something that's still, well, and then you factor in all this chain growth, right? So you have long travel bike, suspension compresses, you get a ton of train, chain growth. So the high pivot sort of eliminates that, keeps small bump sensitivity. And um, yeah, again, sort of this best of both worlds situation and often used trope describing uh, mountain bike technology. But yes, yeah. Any, anything I missed in there, Joe? No, I think that's that's great. Yeah. you, And I think your article explains that stuff really well, too, like lines up with my experience with high pivot bikes as well. I've only ridden two, but I I think the rear axle path is really cool. Like you you can kind of notice a bit of a difference, but an engineering an engineer friend uh brought up to me that you know the axle has to go forward as well when it goes back down. So, you know, it would be it would be really intriguing to see the actual some actual like data and research around that like does that have a negative effect or do you need to set up the suspension differently so that that so that it doesn't have a negative effect or as much as you know 
mitigate that as much as possible. Yeah, I'm really curious to see if this trend of high pivot bikes, particularly on like shorter travel trail and enduro bikes, continues because it is more complicated, it weighs more, and the other systems are also winning races and doing super well. So, mm. you know, even Commensal, who like they've tested all versions of suspension essentially, and now they're on to a six pivot with their, or a six bar with their uh, downhill bike. Yeti's moved to a six bar, and that is added stuff, added moving parts, more things to break, more places for dirt to get caught as well. But it's not the idler pulley, and I think the idler pulley kind of is a is a turnoff for a lot of folks. So it'd be interesting to see how that endures, especially for the the handful of bikes that just recently came out and probably need to keep their carbon molds for a little while. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a little polarizing still because <clears throat> it's funny, the first time I rode it, I rode it around a switchback and there's some hikers sitting there and one of them was like, oh my gosh, look at that gearing. And I was like, what are they talking about? And I was like, oh yeah, a high pivot. <laughs> completely foreign to anything else. But I also feel like, you know, in the beginning where maybe it was just forbidden and who else using this high pivot platform on like, yeah, deviate, it might've seemed a little bit novel. And I feel like as more and more brands like Canada, GT, Norco start using it, it sort of has like this corroboration and validation effect to where it's easier for brands to kind of go in on it and sell it to consumers because consumers are less skeptical of the idea. I think that's why I think it would grow. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Well, yeah, those are good technical explanations uh, for high pivot. And to be honest, you know, my eyes kind of glaze over when we start talking about anti-squat and progression curves and all that stuff. It's kind of over my head, but I'm really curious to know, I mean, is this something, since both of you have ridden high pivot bikes, is this something, A, that you can really feel and that you're like, yes, this is doing something different. And B, is it, is it so much better for certain type of riding that, that you would prefer it, that you would say, yeah, I want a high pivot bike. Like my next bike's going to be high pivot. Any thoughts on that, Juro? So I would say for a, does it really feel different for me? So I've ridden the Jekyll and then the deviate Highlander and on the Jekyll, it didn't feel super special. Like it kind of felt like I was riding a, not any long travel trail bike, but like definitely didn't feel like amazing. I wasn't like, holy cow, this is super different and special and whatever. And granted, I only did a few runs on that. So maybe with a better suspension setup, it really would feel different. And then on the Highlander, it was like, I was blown away. It was 140 millimeters of travel that felt like way more. And I almost never say that because I find that phrase annoying, but <laughs> it felt like 240. I was just like, there's no way this is a 140 millimeter bike. This thing just plows through everything and feels amazing. I really enjoyed that bike. So I think it depends on how it's used. Yeah. So it's just like a factor. It's not the factor where you're like, Oh, you know, instantly throw my leg over a high pivot. And I'm like, Woo, this is, this is different. Totally. Yeah. And from my experience, and Matt, I'm sure you can speak to this as well. Like, I don't have the sense that it's, it depends on the rider too. Like it's, it's a bike that's going to go fast most of the time. And that's kind of what the, what the platform where it shines, 
But if you like to play a lot and jump and bounce around, like I just don't feel like a high pivot is going to be your bike really. Like it's a, yeah, it's kind of a go fast and ram through everything kind of a situation, which for me, I would say I would buy a high pivot bike because that's how I like to ride. And then I also might not buy one <laughs> because there's a lot simpler systems that I can also do that with. So yeah, it's, it's a toss up. Interesting. Yeah. What do you think, Matt? Is, is high pivot for you? Is it going to be your next bike or is it not as important? Yeah. I mean, it, no, like it wouldn't be the sole factor for me. You know, like when I rode the GT, I thought they did a really good job of tuning and support to where it's, it still felt quite poppy going off of jumps and, you know, roots and those kinds of things where I thought it made the biggest differences off of drops and, and kind of high speed, like chunky trails. Also just a lot less noise, like, because you're sort of like controlling the chain growth. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, there is a, definitely a factor, like if the bike feels a lot more composed in those like really high speed, chunky, uh, situations, but less noisy. It feels a little bit more composed. So I felt like the riding characteristics were there, but yeah, then again, there'd be so many other factors like the geometry, the look of the bike suspension design that would still go into the cost that would go into, you know, whether I bought the bike or not, not just because it's a high pivot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is like everything in mountain biking, you know, there's like pros and there's cons and, you know, everybody's going to come down a little bit differently on like which factors are more important to them. And so, I, I mean, that's why this is, this is a fun discussion. Why, you know, just writing about this and testing new things is fun too, because you get to have these conversations and, and really understand stuff. This never black and white where it's just like, I pivot. That's the thing. It's, it's a new discovery where <laughs> every bike's going to have this from now on. Yeah. It just never happens that way. So, Jero, you kind of touched on this um, just now, mentioning the six-bar suspension platforms designs that we're starting to see. And this may be sort of an emerging trend if we really think about it. It's just been pretty recently we've seen this and we're hearing that there's potentially going to be more bikes uh, using that design. But it got me thinking about weight and complexity, and it seems like... Over the past several seasons, mountain bikers have kind of given up on trying to like cut a ton of weight off their bikes. Matt, it's it's been a couple of years, I think, since you wrote um, an opinion piece about you know weight not being that important when it comes to mountain bikes. And one of the trends that's like followed along with that is aluminum frames becoming popular again uh, in place of carbon because obviously they cost less and at the same time, they tend to be a little heavier. So what do you think about that, Matt? Is this a is this an ongoing trend in terms of like people not worrying about weight on their bikes? Or, or is this one kind of done? I mean, I feel like as things have yeah, you've got more aluminum bikes, or at least like they seem like they're coming back because they're making the sport a little bit more accessible or keeping it a little bit more affordable for people. I think my point with that article was that it matters less than it used to because the suspension kinematics and the geometry have gotten so much better over the years that you don't feel weight like you used to with really crappy, stinky suspension where you're like blowing through your travel trying to get up a hill. Yeah. I mean, it's like case in point, I've talked about it a bunch that Ibis Ripley AF 
lifts, which was like a 32 and a half pound, 120 mil XC trail bike. And I mean, it, yeah, it was one of the best climbing bikes I rode last year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We were, we were talking before the show trying to think of examples of aluminum bikes. And yeah, unfortunately we didn't, didn't do our homework maybe necessarily on this, but it does feel like a lot of brands recently have like changed sort of how they roll out new bikes. Like for a while there, they were rolling out, they would do like a carbon version first and then like go back later and build the aluminum. But I feel like recently we saw some brands launch with the aluminum first. And yeah, unfortunately I don't think we have any specific examples there, but it does seem like, like maybe things have shifted a little bit back in aluminum's favor. And and one of the factors too is actually just, just looking at the materials and like sourcing and everything where, you know, aluminum is, is a recyclable material, whereas carbon fiber is, is not currently recyclable. And so that potentially plays into people's decisions as well. Drew, you have any thoughts on aluminum frames? Is that, is that trending or is that kind of stuck where it's, where it's always been? I hope it's trending. Uh, <laughs> the Trek session came out, I think it was this year. There was, yeah, it was this year. There was a new one and that one came out aluminum first. And I believe it is aluminum only at the moment. Mm. Yeah. So that would be, would be one example. I think one cool thing about one of the many cool things about aluminum as a frame material is that it doesn't require this like million plus, I don't know how much they cost dollar, um, carbon mold that, is you know that's a fixed thing so aluminum kind of allows for yeah and it's made out of aluminum i think right are the molds made out of aluminum <laughs> it's like a giant block i think it's some metal okay uh, yeah i don't i haven't researched it too much um but i like the idea that if they want engineers can make rolling changes with aluminum frames so if they get to a point and they're like oh actually this this seat stay should be like three millimeters longer and everything would be better. They can just do that. I mean, I'm sure it's much more difficult than that. And like anyone who's a frame engineer heard me say that and like <laughs> punch the wall, but, <laughs> but at least it's not like millions of dollars to make that change. I would imagine it's like a little more reasonable and they can shift things around and they don't have to like play model year games with their, mm -hmm. with their frame releases. So it just seems more flexible. And I mean, there's some aluminum bikes that are coming out that are not much heavier than carbon, if they're heavier at all. And when you look at wheels, like wheels have to be so overbuilt, or rims rather, if they're carbon, that they often are about the same weight. So, I mean, the advantages are growing slimmer, it seems. Yeah, if you look how um, you know Rocky Mountain has done their past few bikes, the Instinct and the Altitude, the upper link pieces on those are aluminum and they're bolted on to a carbon frame so that they can make, you know, rolling frame updates and update the kinematics to that frame because they can more easily tailor aluminum. Yeah. Smart. At least those pieces are aluminum, but I think transition launched. I don't know if it was, well, I think the spire might be aluminum only. And then the newer patrol was aluminum first and then carbon, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And the spire is also available in carbon now. Okay. Yeah. And I just did the same thing with the Rip Mo AF where they launched the AF first. I had more aggressive geometry than the V1 Rip Mo. And then the V2, I think was the same geometry as the AF. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. 
I mean, you go back far enough and, and that's how it was in the olden days. They would, they would build frame out of aluminum first, like work out kind of all the kinks. And then once they're set on that design, they would do the carbon. So it is, it is unusual um, to be going back to that. We don't often in the bike industry kind of go backward, but yeah, it seems like people are rediscovering the advantages of working in aluminum. Cool. So, all right. The last one that I have on my list is electronics and digital everything. And obviously, I mean, the smartphone has transformed society and the world really over the past more than a decade. And the bike industry was bound to catch up and to join in on the fun. And so, yeah, this year, I guess it's been a couple of years since SRAM introduced their wireless group. Uh, where you've got wireless drivetrain, wireless dropper post controls. We just are hearing today that SRAM bought uh, Hammerhead, which makes GPS devices. And so, yeah, it seems like everything's going going sort of digital. We're seeing more of that in bikes. Any other examples you can think of, Jero, that, that come to mind? I mean, just more and more e-bike integration. Um you know, with, with the like control panels in the top tube and stuff like that, you know, which is probably, I would imagine that's going to continue. That kind of gives brands more and more control over the look and the functionality of their bikes and seems to make sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You, do you have any other ideas around that, Matt? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think like Shimano at some point in the next year or two, will probably release their, um, competitor to access, what SRAM's at a GX axis now? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know. I kind of doubt they'll do like an NX axis, right? <laughs> I don't know. If, yeah. I don't know, but it, it is funny to think that DI2 is not a competitor. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, but they, yeah, they, and it's not I'm thinking I mean, they will release a, a competitor to access. Yeah. Yeah. Wireless version. Yep. Yeah. Those wires are a pain in the butt. <laughs> Yeah. And we're, I mean, we're even seeing the like Fox live valve and then, you know, rock shocks has their version of the like computer controlled shocks. And we've got all kinds of meters and things we can put on our bikes to, you know, figure out if we got the right tire pressure and, you know, how we can adjust that and, and make sure our suspension settings are dialed. And, at, you know, I was at the world cup race uh, last year in West Virginia and it was, it was distracting seeing bikes go by during the race and there's like led lights like flickering you know like it's on people's derailleur and like it's like a is that even necessary like who is anybody looking at that like is that indicating to you like yes your your derailleur has battery power like i I don't even know i almost think it's like to show off and it's like blingy and it's like look bikes are high tech we have digital we have digital bikes now but yeah, in a lot of cases, it is helping as well. There's a lot of uh, new insights that we can gain from from our riding and performance and things. Yeah, I, I suppose it's it's inevitable. Yeah, I would say one last thing about the wireless shifting in particular and droppers. Like ha- having lived in Bellingham for a, a little while now, long enough to have replaced two shift cables mm-hmm. and housing, I really wouldn't mind having a wireless system Uh I'd kind of rather have to remember to charge battery every couple of weeks than have to deal with all of the mess and, and just deal with like, you know, at least one ride before you remember to do that where your shifting is just awful. So mm-hmm. you don't have to do any of that when you don't have cables getting stuck. Yeah. 
yeah, it's, there's definitely a lot of advantages and, and yeah, I mean, we've all gotten so used to all the like advantages and conveniences of having a smartphone. And so there's, I think there's a lot of those that make sense for bikes and, and it's improving them in a lot of ways for sure. Okay. So let's talk about some of the trends that we think we're going to see in 2022. We've hinted at it through these sort of older trends uh, that we noticed from like last year. A lot of these are going to be continuing obviously into 2022, but what are some of the like emerging trends that maybe are just getting started? Well, one of the first ones on the list is uh, longer dropper posts. People have wanted those for a while. And one of the solutions seems to be fatter seat posts. And Matt, you just did a piece about this. Tell us what's going on with these fatter 34.9 millimeter seat tubes. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, kind of like you've seen standards evolve everywhere else. And probably the best example of that this past year or two is the Fox 38 and the RockShox Zeb. Hmm. You know, wider stanchion tubes to stabilize the bike or give a stiffer feel up front on longer travel enduro bikes. Yeah, I mean, one of the easiest things to do uh, like some of the people I talked to for this story mentioned to make something stiffer is just to make the tube wider. And as geometries progressed, the standover height's gotten lower, the seat tubes have gotten shorter, and more and more brands are specking longer travel dropper posts on their bikes. So, yeah, I mean, what, seven, eight years ago, well, Drew, you and I ride mediums, like we would have been happy to get, you know, 100 mil or 125 mil. Mm-hmm dropper posts on our bikes. And now it's like standard, even anything less than 170 on a medium is I think going to be scoffed at soon. But as these like get longer, where most seat tubes have stayed 30.9 or 31.6, then they get flexier. The leverage puts more stress on the internals of the dropper post and they could be more likely to, um, yeah, suffer reliability issues. So at least like some of the dropper post manufacturers I heard from seem to think that a lot more 34.9 seat tubes are coming down the line from manufacturers, from bike manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you see, you have any problem with this, Jiro? Is this like, I mean, most of us were tired of like new standards and, and things like that, but is, is this one like something to get, get all worked up about or is it, is it kind of no big deal? I think this one seems fine. I mean, there's enough dropper post companies and frame companies that are saying like, Hey, if people want longer droppers, this needs to happen. And I think Matt's mm-hmm. uh, research kind of shines a light on a lot of the reasons for that. Mm-hmm. I would say this feels a little bit like the mixed wheel discussion where it's like, I think it matters more for people with longer inseams. Like personally, I don't need more than 130 or sorry, 170 millimeter dropper. Like I've, I've ridden a bike with a 200 millimeter dropper and I was just like, I don't notice any difference. The saddle's out of my way in the same way it was on the other bike. Yeah, so I think if you're shorter, it's kind of like, yeah, who cares? But but not everybody is, and this will really suit people who are on extra large, extra, extra large frames and want like a 200-plus mm-hmm. millimeter dropper and that's going to last just the same as everyone else's. So it's really cool for that. Yeah, it seems like the, at least currently, the dropper post companies are more than willing to, to build their posts in a number of different diameters. I mean, they've even gone so far as to like go backwards and do the 27, was it 27 two 
or whatever it is that like gravel bikes and yeah. maybe some road bikes traditionally run. I mean, it seems like they're going to be able to offer a number of diameters for a long time. And so this isn't a situation like, like with boost where people are like, Oh my gosh, like in a few years, am I even going to be able to buy like non boost wheels or that kind of thing? I think this seems like one where even if there is a transition, there's going to be plenty of time uh, where you'll still be able to get parts for your older bike and, and everybody will be happy. Hopefully. Yeah. I think it's like other Brands like, um, you know, Specialized and Trek were early adopters of it. Drop proposed manufacturers really had no choice to make a 34.9. So they got an early start. Um, otherwise it's like, they're not going to make drop proposed for every other bike except like two of the biggest brands in the world. So of <laughs> right. course they're going to offer it. So yeah, I mean, I guess it would be an easier transition than, you know, Boost and, and non-Boost and Boost 157 have all kind of happened to us. Yeah. <laughs> have happened to us. Yeah. It's a good way to put it. But, but at the same time too, yeah, there's like plenty of adapters and things that have come out in the years since. And so, yeah, I don't know if we were worried about it, maybe we shouldn't have been as worried as, yeah. I mean, plenty of people are always going to have older bikes and, and there's going to be somebody out there finding solutions to making that work and making that transition as painless as possible. So let's get back to trails. So we talked about these trails popping up in sort of new, unexpected destinations. One of the things that I'm hearing is that trail funding is getting a little bit easier to come by. And I know locally here um, in Atlanta, um, it sounds like some of the like cities and county governments are actually kicking in funding for trail projects in the old days it would be, you know, there'd be like a mountain bike club and they would approach a government agency and say, Hey, we want to build trails in this park. You know, our members, we're going to fundraise and we're going to like pay for them. All you got to do is like give us permission. And sometimes that was easy. A lot of times it was hard, but nowadays I think Matt, like you mentioned, tourism is kind of a proven thing and communities realize that these trail projects potentially you're going to pay for themselves. What, what are you seeing with that, Matt, in terms of trail funding? Yeah. I mean, I think it's still going to be um, a lot of these like economic impact grants and things that are going to be up for grabs. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the demand is still going to come from mountain bike populations in towns that have governments that are not familiar with this idea. I think there's just, yeah, just still so many governments that are not, familiar with the idea of investing in trails and it's, it takes mountain bike populations to kind of make them aware and say, Hey, like, look what happened here. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, it's, it's sort of those smaller grants and I guess not necessarily small, but state or, um, county level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess the other part of that too, a lot of these places I'm thinking of, you know, they're not doing it for tourism. They're, they're doing it purely for recreation for the local citizens to enjoy. And perhaps, one of the things that's changing is just the demographics of, of what mountain bikers look like. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot more kids and families getting involved and, you know, NICA taking off and these high school mountain bike leagues where kids aren't playing baseball <laughs> as much as they used to, perhaps. And so instead of investing in more fields, governments are saying, hey, like, let's build trails instead if that's what people want. And I mean, it's taken a lot of time for, for us to get to this point, you know, to get 
mountain bikers into these positions of authority. You know, our sport is still relatively new. And so, you know, it's taken some time for it to become, yeah, dare I say it, mainstream. But, uh, yeah, it definitely, it feels like something's changing. Any thoughts on that, Jero? Have you noticed, noticed any of that being back in the U.S. or, or in Italy as well? Was, was this a conversation people were having? In Italy, for sure not. Really, the, it's, it's just kind of like people opening old footpaths, and that's the majority of the trails. And then there, there are bike parks in ski resorts, but they've, they've been there for a long time, so it's not really anything new. And then here, it seems like there's a decent amount of money that goes into some of the trails in Bellingham, but more than half of the trails are off the map, and they're built by local folks who have been building the trails since before there was a trail association, so there's those are free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a mix, but my understanding, at least from talking to locals, is that the trails that are built off the map are there's just as many of them, if not more, as there are on the map. And they're really, they're really good. I mean, I've ridden a ton of them and they're, I'd say they're maybe even better. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, there's so many examples of places like, you know, Sedona, I believe we did a podcast with uh, Kevin from the Verde Valley cycling group there. And they, you know, it sounds like a lot of the trails there started out that way as social trails, as unofficial trails. And they were able to get those sanctioned and then, you know, then voila, like they've got this amazing asset and resource that yeah. really didn't cost anything to build. Like you said, people are out there building them right, right. on their own. And hopefully, hopefully we'll see more of that, that it's more acceptable to, to get trails authorized. You know, it, I am seeing a bit like with the pandemic of hikers and, and different groups pushing back just as trails get more crowded everywhere you know even the neighborhood trails as people are like working from home and maybe not traveling as much but also for the like well-known destinations those places are getting sort of overrun in the past couple of years as people you know choose to do like rv or like car-based trips um, and so we're, we're hearing about places like crested butte uh, that are filling up matt how how do you see that impacting trail use and trail building as we go forward from this time of like having some places really overcrowded. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it will inform a lot of these newer trail destinations. And I think that's kind of like the bottom line. Mm. Uh, I was talking about this with Aaron Rogers uh, last week who runs rock solid trail contracting, like the biggest trail building company in the nation. They had some interesting notes, you know, as far as like, a lot of these destinations that exist now, there was no plan. Like they weren't necessarily meant to be destinations when trails started forming there. And so they weren't really built with a flow in mind. And I think you're going to see like those older destinations sort of informing the layout, the trail design, trail network design, and maybe even the city design in recreation destinations in the future so that it is more sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I passed through Moab and Sedona last, I guess it was October. Uh, by the time we got to Sedona, I mean, there were traffic signs in front of the trailhead saying this is closed to anyone except locals. So locals are the only ones who could get a, uh, a parking spot at the trailhead in Moab. Yeah. I mean, there's no camping in sight unless you drove an hour outside of Moab and camped up on this bluff. So yeah, I mean, these older 
destinations as great as Moab and Crested Butte are. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a different experience going to them now than it used to be five, even, yeah, even five years ago. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, something's got to change for sure. And, and hopefully some as new destinations come online, that'll kind of take some of the stress off of the existing ones. But yeah, I mean, I also see the, the popular ones just continuing to gain in popularity as there's more mountain bikers out there. There's families integrating biking into their, their vacations. And, you know, I mean, we can blame social media and, and all these other things of like, you know, everybody wanting to go to the same places, the same iconic spots. But, but yeah, that's definitely a trend that, that I'm interested to follow and see how that plays out over the next few years, especially hopefully as things get back to semi-normal in terms of travel. So one of the unfortunate trends that I guess we're all hoping is sort of temporary through the pandemic has been supplies, supply chains for bike stuff. What do you guys see as far as the trends this year, Jero? Do you think things are going to start improving on the supply side or, or do we still have a little while to go? I think we might have a little while to go based on what I've would have heard from folks, especially people who work at bike companies, mm-hmm. and that's a it, they're in a different situation where they're trying to buy a hundred of a particular derailleur, and and for sure that affects you know the the timing and their ability to get those things. Whereas going to the bike shop might be a little bit different, but mm-hmm. also the the huge uh, component retailers that are that are also buying a hundred of those derailleurs are largely out of everything, so. Mm. A lot of the places I've been looking for components anyway, I'm not finding them. And there's stuff I've been looking for for a long time. That situation hasn't changed. So I think it might continue for a little while longer. I mean, the factory that Shimano had to close a while ago and all the people being sick and the new protocols, like Mm -hmm. in addition to all the shipping issues, you know, it's just a big pile of new challenges. So yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's around for a little while longer. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're hearing from folks that is still, they're, they're thinking a couple of years maybe before like supplies get evened out and, and they can get the things they want when they need them. Yeah. I mean, those things could certainly change, but I've heard from a couple of different brands that they've got fork and shock orders out a year or two before they're going to get anything. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's not great news on their end. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts, Matt? No, unfortunately not really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think like when, this stuff started to come to a head in 2020, the early pandemic, like we'd heard that it would be until, yeah, it could be two years up until 2023 until they'd get better. And I, like I'm optimistic things will get better this year, but I don't think that it will really return to normal until yeah, probably 2023, maybe beyond that. So no optimism for me, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, it's your turn. Be the sunshine. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I have a different take and, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I could be completely wrong on this, but I, I have a feeling that there will be a bit of like whiplash to all this. And I have no idea how long this will take, but I feel like we will see an oversupply of bike stuff. Um, maybe it's going to be in a year or two years or whatever, but just, I don't know. Just thinking about the people I know that, that bought bikes early in the pandemic, people who hadn't been into the sport before, 
a lot of them got into it because they couldn't do anything else. And they, they bought what they could. They bought used. They bought, you know, just whatever they could get. Um, but then as things started opening back up, like I noticed those people were, you know, they're starting to watch college football again and, you know, do the things that, that they did before they found biking. I think some will stick around for sure. But yeah, I, I, I have a feeling that the demand is, is going to drop off pretty quickly. But yeah, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I guess that whiplash uh, effect, like you mentioned, is kind of the other side of the coin to where you might have an oversupply soon. Yeah. And the tough part too, is that, you know, people who were buying the bikes, they were using, there was a lot of stimulus money and, and people weren't going out to eat anymore. And so they're like, Hey, I got money. I can buy a bike. And they did, or they bought something else because they couldn't buy a bike. They said, Oh, I'm going to buy that PS five or PS seven, whatever they're on now, <laughs> use that money for something else. Cause I can't get a bike. Um, and so that money's gone. And I, yeah, I just really hope that they were not kind of kidding ourselves that the people are still people who couldn't buy a bike are like still wanting to buy one that they haven't, haven't moved on. Sure. So one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, um, in terms of existing trends or upcoming ones is mountain bike geometry. And that seems like something that, that changes year to year. And it's like, Oh, this year we're focusing on this angle or this measurement. And lately one of those, thing that that people seem to be really interested in is steeper seat tubes what do you think Jero? Are, are seat tubes going to keep getting steeper or are we kind of at the point where they're steep enough well i think it kind of it depends on the bike <laughs> like too many things mm -hmm. i'm i'm forever in the gray area with every answer it seems but i think you know on a on a hardtail where the seat tube gets steeper as it goes into its travel, something around 75, 76 degrees is pretty reasonable. And then with a full suspension bike where that seat tube stays a little more stable and fixed because the bike goes into its travel, hopefully in a balanced way, especially while you're pedaling where this matters. Mm -hmm. A lot of bikes are closer to the like 76, 77 degree angle. And then there's like the privateer with, I think it's 80 degrees on the 161. So mm -hmm. yeah, I would say that human bodies are not changing. So at some point like that <laughs> angle can only go so far before it starts to cause problems for people's knees. And it isn't fixing the, the situation of like getting your weight further forward to compensate for the super long reach that you want on the descent, you know, like that, mm -hmm. that balance only goes so far before it kind of runs out of benefit. And I think having ridden the privateer that 80 degree seat tube, took a while to get used to. And then it was amazing. And then every other bike I got on felt slack and weird and like I couldn't keep <laughs> weight on the front tire. So, um, you know, like all these things will adapt, but I do think that that might be close to the limit. I might, I might eat those words two years from now, but I think that <laughs> I think seat tubes might chill out soon. And I, I honestly think geometry in general is getting closer to being where it fits really well with human bodies both climbing and descending and kind of like motorcycles. I think it might like chill out and not change a ton mm. this year and in the next few years. Yeah. I, I think I tend to agree with you there for sure that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of areas where bikes need to be improved as far as geometry goes. And that, you know, with a lot of these changes, it's like when we were trying to make head tubes much more slack, 
there was there were obvious problems with that. And so it's like, okay, we did that, but now we got a new problem. We need to address that. But yeah, I'm like you. I feel like we've we've gotten to a point where we've like adjusted things and compensated and bikes are, are pretty good right now. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean I would agree as well. The privateer that Jero had mentioned and and actually sent this way had kind of spurred my thought. I I mean, there's obviously still a lot of brands that sort of have to catch up to that. And maybe this generation, if there are brands that haven't crossed that 75 degree mark, then mm-hmm. they will, or they will jump over it and, you know, go from like 74 or like 78 or something like that. But noticing it on the privateer to where like if I pedal it around my block or something like that, and I'm on obviously flat ground, like I feel slammed into my hands, um, mm-hmm. you know, going up. Belcher uh, or some other like heinous climb here in Colorado. I really appreciate it because it feels like I'm in a better um, seating position. But yeah, I mean, aside from 77, 8, 9, 80 degrees, I don't know how much more they can really change. But yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on, you know, the head tube angle too and, and the length of the bike changing as well. How much more brains are really going to push that? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You make a good point. I mean, that's, that's, Unfortunately, probably the likely scenario is that brands will sort of continue to push the envelope on seat tubes just to outdo one another, only to realize that either it causes a new problem and, oh, we have a solution to that, or they're going to back them back down. So, yeah, maybe this is an opportunity to lock in today's reasonable seat tube angles uh, so you don't have to (laughs) have to deal with it in a few years when they're they're a little out of control. Yeah, I think there, yeah, that's a, that's a good point, Jeff. And I think there is a caveat too for cross country bikes. Cause what we're talking about and what we ride are bikes that are designed to pedal really well uphill mm-hmm. and then you're totally done with the saddle. That's it. You, right. It has, mm-hmm. it has little bearing on the rest of the ride. Um, whereas cross country bikes, like you need to be in a position where you can get the most power mm-hmm. into the pedals. Right. So that's just a different position and it's not necessarily an 80 degree seat tube angle. So. Those bikes are, I think, gonna gonna stay a little bit where they are, or move around a bit more, maybe, and they might experiment. But I don't know that they're gonna necessarily move toward eighty degrees. And the same thing with downhill bikes. Like downhill bikes, seat tube angle is about where the saddle is between your legs. Yeah, because you're you're never gonna sit on it. It's about pushing the bike around with your with your legs. So yeah, those that's really great point to consider those bikes that are more specialized at, at either end of the spectrum, right? Like cross country and downhill. And if you look at those, the geometry on those has not changed that much because people aren't trying to do two very different things, you know, on a downhill bike, a lot of them still don't even have droppers, right? Like the, the post is just slammed. Like you don't need to go up and down, like you're not going to be pedaling. So <laughs> it's right, made yeah. for like one thing it's optimized for that. But yeah, it's it's trying to find the right balance on these bikes that do go up and down. That that's where we're seeing all the changes. Yeah, for sure. I would say, like on the more general geometry thing, the one thing that I would like to see is slightly longer head tubes. And maybe there's a weight issue there. Maybe there's like a story of the way that the down tube and top tube need to connect. I don't know. I'm not a frame engineer, but. I don't know. I just feel like everybody who's riding these big bikes has like 15 to 20 millimeters of spacers under the stem that look awful. Like the bike would just look a lot better if there were more, more tube there. So I don't know. 
If anybody's listening, huh? that's that's my yeah. <laughs> 1.5 cents. I'm on board for that for sure. Yeah, just being tall, I feel like it always needs to be a little more. And I've always got a ton of spacers. So yeah, that's a good point. Well, let's talk about other trends we want to see over the next five to ten years. Let's like look way out there and just just go wild and our wildest dreams. Like what trends do we want to see? And Jero sounds like longer, taller head tubes, maybe. Uh, what about you, Matt? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be nice for geometry to stabilize like we were talking about. I mean, I think that's geometry for the past five years has been the reason a lot of us have jumped in newer bikes because we want to find out like, yeah, if the grass is, is really that much greener <laughs> and so far it has been, but Hey, wouldn't it be nice to like feel a little bit less tempted to upgrade every two or three years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Along those lines. Yeah. I mean, mountain biking is an expensive sport and, and so, yeah, I, I would like to see an even more welcoming sport of mountain biking just one that's that's even more accessible to folks. I feel like we're heading in that direction for sure, getting people of all ages into the sport, um, people in different communities maybe that hadn't traditionally been exposed to it. Along those lines, uh, Jarrell, one of the things that you had mentioned uh, in past conversations is athletes earning a more livable wage. And a lot of us, I guess, assume that athletes make a lot of money. I mean, they're celebrities, they're superstars, like they're living the life, but that's not always the case, is it? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's athletes like Rafaela Richter who just got a contract this year. Finally. I mean, she's been sponsored before, but she just now kind of got to the point where she's going to be able to not work and not have to depend on, you know, folks in her family to, uh, get her to races and get her through the season. And she's a multi-time German national champion in downhill and enduro. Um, I mean, somebody who's that fast and that good can't make a paycheck. Like that just, that boggles my mind. And she's, she's one of one example of many. I mean, there's, there's a good chunk of the field in enduro and downhill. I think from my understanding, less so in cross country, but, um, yeah. And the gravity side, uh, a lot of folks are just not getting paid. And if they are, it's not what they're living off of. So I would really like to see that change. Yeah. Yeah. For women, especially, I mean, most of these, you know, gravity teams, they're, they're pretty male heavy and yeah, seems like that's, that's ripe for change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I don't know if that's like they need agents, they need somebody it, or need, I don't know if that's the word, but if it would be helpful, if there was somebody to advocate for them and somebody, someone whose job it was to make sure that athletes are getting connected, that they're getting paid fairly, that they're getting all of the benefits that they need. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's not the job of somebody who needs to be training 20 hours a week and stretching and lifting weights for another, <laughs> I don't know, 15, 20. So yeah, yeah, it could be that they, there needs to be some more support in there in different ways. Yeah. It, it does seem like, uh, the, the wages and, and just being able to make a living, at our sport. I think, I mean, that's important to a lot of people and, and it could, a lot of up and coming athletes that could be a deterrent for them to even want to like dedicate themselves to the sport. I know I thought it was funny. I 
when I interviewed uh, Nico Malali, I was like doing some research on him online ahead of time and type Nico Malali into Google and, you know, it has those like suggested queries. And like the top one was Nico Malali net worth. And it's like, I can just imagine these like middle school boys, you know, like, you know, Googling their favorite mountain bike athletes and being like, oh, can I make money at this? Like, could this be my career? And, you know, I don't think there's even a decent result. I don't know that they'll ever know, but you know, that's definitely something that, that everybody needs to know is like, can I do this for a living? Like, I'm really passionate about it, but yeah. Yeah. you know, I can't do it alone. So speaking of racing, one of the things that people talk about every now and then is uh, the idea of more gravity mountain biking, making an appearance in the Olympics. So downhill or enduro as an Olympic sport. What do you think about that, Matt? Would that, would that be awesome or not necessary or, or what? what do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I like, I feel like cross country is still when it comes to that internationally recognized mountain bike discipline. That's, I mean, it kind of takes up the most air in the room. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be cool to see downhill or enduro as an Olympic sport, but I'd also feel like the logistics of it would just be really, really tough to pull off in an Olympic setting. You know, I mean, I think like the convenient thing about XC is like you start the race and within two hours it's done to where it just seems like it would maybe take, take it a lot longer to move the entire field through a course. Yeah. And also having the mountains for it could be tricky. Like it's not always held somewhere where there's like legitimate mountain biking. So you might have to have like the Olympic, the Olympics are in Florida, but we're going to have the downhill race somewhere else where there are are downhills. (laughs) Right. Yeah, because you can build an XT course with, you know, a few hundred feet of elevation uh, throughout the whole thing. Totally, um, yeah. You know, if you got some random hills, you build features and and make tricky climbs out of not much. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely been the challenge with some of those newer sports. I guess in 2020, they added surfing and like that was that was a tough one. <laughs> they had to have it on the other side of the country um, from where like the main Olympic venue was and and they had to rely on the waves. I mean, they had to make sure that there's going to be like good, good waves for it. So yeah, it seems like that kind of stuff can be overcome. And then you look at Beijing, like the winter Olympics coming up. And I mean, they've built just like ski ramps in the middle of, of the city and like <laughs> no mountains required. So it's like, if I feel like if somebody wants it to happen, it can happen in the Olympics. And just for me, I mean, I love XC. I think it's, I think it's amazing. It's a a fun sport to watch. And at the same time, you know, especially if you look at how it entered the Olympics, I mean, it was basically like road riding. I mean, it was like the people who are good at road riding. If you're a strong athlete and you've got a a strong motor, uh, you can do well in XC. And, you know, we have seen the courses get more difficult over time, uh, so that the technical aspect is part of it. But, I don't know. For me, mountain biking is, is all about that. Just like going fast, using gravity to your advantage and, and like riding some pretty gnarly stuff. And I don't know. I feel like it'd be even more watchable, uh, than, than XC. But yeah, I think the filming challenges for enduro are also another thing to consider. Like if they're, if they're, if you're actually going to have four to six stages or whatever number they happen to be and they're all on different trails like that's a whole lot of running wires for example for the (laughs) world cup downhill races like all of those cameras you see are run on wires that go up and down the mountain um 
So it's not like somebody's just standing there with a camera they carried into the woods. Like it's right. It's a ton of work. Yeah. yeah. Or it might not even matter. It would be like like the XC Olympics this year and the Olympics. Like I had to wake up in the middle of the night to watch it on some like digital only platform. <laughs> so right. Yeah. It's like they don't even care anyway. Nobody's watching it. So I guess they could just say yeah. we're not we're not covering it. Yeah. Yeah, you have to buy some peacock offshoot and yeah, pay five bucks to watch it. Or... Yeah, and it's just like a slideshow of like photographers throughout the course, like two days yeah. later, and we'll see what right. happened. <laughs> yeah, good point. It's good points for sure. One final one, a trend I would love to see, and you know we're kind of seeing it in fits and starts from bike brands, but man, I can't wait for the day when we can like customize our bike builds, like when you buy a new bike from Santa Cruz or whoever, you know, I feel like you should be able to spec the bike exactly the way you want. You should be able to pick the saddle and the wheels and the tires and everything on the bike. But for whatever reason, we haven't seen that yet. What do you guys think about that, Drew? Would, would you be into that or, or are you okay with like choosing the things? Do, do bike brands do a good job? I guess I'm asking uh, specking their bikes generally, or would you like to make changes? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I would definitely make <clears throat> changes if I were to buy a complete bike, which I haven't done in years. I usually just buy a frame and build it up, but I think it totally makes sense. And it would be great if we were able to do that from the product manager side of that story. I totally understand why they don't want to do that because that means they have to carry an entire warehouse of bike parts that may never sell rather than just saying like, this is an NX bike with these RockShox parts done. That's it. This is the bike you get. If you don't like it, you can change the components later or buy a different bike, but this is what we're selling you. The shock is in that way already tuned to that bike. Maybe in some, a few cases, the fork even has a different tune, especially with really big bikes. So yeah, just the ability to to keep a reasonable number of parts on the shelf is I think a big mm -hmm. part of why they don't do that, but it'd be rad if that was more possible. Maybe if they were, or if they were able to get parts super easily and just order them as they need them, that could, that could possibly work out. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like that would, that would solve the issue. If they could order them, they don't have to have it ahead of time. And yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to wait, I'd be willing to say, yeah, if it's going to take them a couple of weeks to like source all the parts or whatever, brands i'm okay with that or even just limited like you pick this saddle or this saddle you pick like from these two or three sets of tires like that would in my opinion that would go a long way for sure what do you think matt yeah i mean i think like there are some smaller brands that do that well so if you look at gorilla gravity you have a lot more freedom as far as like how you can build out your bike a lot of online bike shops like worldwide Cyclery and Fanatic um, are doing that. And I think it's probably easier for them because they're carrying so many of those parts anyway. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be as cheap as if you were to buy just a, a SRAM and RockShox build or a Fox and Shimano build from mm -hmm. yeah. a specialized bike shop or something like that. Um, I think it's always going to be more affordable that way just because those brands are going to buy in batches. And the more RockShox stuff they buy, the more they're going to save. Mm -hmm. So, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd like to see it, but just because I don't think like anybody, I, th I think it's rare when somebody buys a bike and they're like, I love every single part on this bike, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I don't like, I don't know if I see that changing much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe we're not the best like focus group too, because we, 
we have tried a number of things and we probably have particular tastes at this point and know exactly what we want. Whereas for a lot of folks, it's like, I don't really know. Like, I just, just give me the thing that you think is the best. And so there is value in, in that spec that the brand manager has come up with and has said, yeah, this is, we think this is a good spec. This stuff works well together and, and people are going to be happy with it. So yes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Like you guys are the professionals. So just put the right parts on the bike and I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's definitely a fair perspective. Seems likely this will be, this will be a hybrid. We'll see both continue. Neither one is going to win out. Well, I think that about does it uh, for these trends that we're seeing this year and, and perhaps in the future. If there are any trends that maybe you're seeing or things you'd like to see uh, that we didn't mention, we'd love to hear about it. You can always email us, info at singletracks.com or connect with us on social media. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.